Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. Thanks, Dr. Sharma, for being here to talk to us about SUDEP today. I was going to give you the floor and let you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Emma, for this invitation. I'm very happy to talk on this platform about SUDEP. So I, my name is Suvasini. I'm a pediatric neurologist and epileptologist. I work in uh, New Delhi, India, in a government-sponsored teaching hospital for children. And uh, I have been working with children with epilepsy for the last uh, 15 years. And my research interests include um, ketogenic diet, drug-resistant epilepsy, infantile spasms, and also SUDEP. So I got involved in SUDEP in the last five or six years when I realized that this is one topic which nobody really in India is much bothered about. I started with a, with a family experience, which got me interested in this topic, and the family wanted answers. But unfortunately, we don't have any autopsies, any such systems in India, and there's really hardly any awareness even amongst neurologists. So that got me interested. We did a study on parental counseling of parents of children with epilepsy regarding SUDEP and how it impacts them. And we found that, in fact, rather than increasing anxiety, it was actually improving their confidence in managing the children and it was improving their behaviors. I'll talk about this later in detail. So that got me interested. And then I got involved in the ILA and task force. We've been working for the last almost two years now. Yeah, we are involved in a number of activities for SUDEP advocacy and education. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing a little bit about you and, and your involvement with the SUDEP task force. Well, I'll ask you a little bit more about that here, too, in a second. I was just going to start out and ask you if you can define sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, what we call SUDEP, for our listeners. Yeah. I mean, the short definition, just SUDEP, is that it is defined as a sudden and unexpected. We don't call it unexplained anymore. We do know that there are explanations for it. Sudden and unexpected, non-traumatic and non-drowning death of a person with epilepsy without a toxicological or anatomical cause of death detected during the post-mortem examination. This is a broad definition. and There are some certain subcategories. Uh, because not everyone gets a postmortem done, like in, for example, especially in low resource settings. And most postmortems we have are the medical legal ones where some foul place suspected. In a natural death, uh, mostly it's hardly ever done. So, so the first category is definite SUDEP. So definite SUDEP is a sudden and unexpected are there, witnessed or unwitnessed, again, non-traumatic, non-drowning death occurring in benign circumstances, that is non-suspicious circumstances. In an individual with epilepsy, with or without evidence of a seizure. So seizure may or may not have occurred, but excluding documented status epilepticus, because people with epilepsy can die even because of status, but that is not considered as SUDEP. So in which a postmortem examination does not reveal a cause of death. So that is definite SUDEP. So there is a category of probable SUDEP, like everything else is there in definition, except that there is no autopsy evidence. There is no autopsies, but when we get a verbal autopsy and you get a whole description, everything sounds like a SUDEP, then you call it a probable SUDEP. 
Then there are patients who may have like when the autopsy is done, something else may be also found, not as a cause, but maybe some coronary artery disease is found, maybe some obstructive pulmonary disease. So there can be various pathologies which could also have contributed, not as the cause, but also may have associated. These patients are said to have SUDEP+. Plus. So again, so definite SUDEP plus is when this is autopsy confirmed and probable SUDEP plus is when, you know, there's a history of some other comorbid disorder, which may have contributed. And then there's a category of a possible SUDEP and the competing cause of death is present. And also a category of near SUDEP or near SUDEP plus when the patient has been revived. The whole event happened, but like but the patient survives with resuscitation, that is a near SUDEP. And finally, if you have a not so deaf, when there's a clear cut, another cause for death, then it's not so deaf. So these are the categories and these are used by people who educate these deaths, people with epilepsy and they try and classify, but it's useful to know, especially in research purposes. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing the definition, all those definitions. (laughs) Yeah, I will just also talk about the incidence here. So yeah, it's it's not very common. That's the thing we need to understand that it's rare. So the incidence in both adults and children is 1.2 per thousand. So every year out of a thousand people with epilepsy, one person will die. Now this risk is much less than risk of dying with say on a road traffic accident or a coronary artery disease or so it's it's rare. But it's still there, so we need to know about it. Absolutely. Very important part to include the incidence. Just wanted to jump into a little bit about the pathogenesis of SUDEP. There are many theories that are proposed, such as cardiovascular etiology, respiratory control etiology, autonomic dysfunction, prone position. Those are a few of the proposed theories. Can you share your thoughts about some of these proposed mechanisms? These mechanisms that you mentioned, like cardiovascular, respiratory, autonomic, they're all, they are not mutually exclusive. So they might coexist in the different people and they might cascade as well. So it's actually a final common pathway with each death and they're all involved in some way or the other in to different degree in different patients. So I will start with the heart mechanisms. So both the seizures by themselves, the acute seizures, and chronic epilepsy can affect the heart. So in acute seizures, we know are associated with the tachycardia and catecholamine storm, it can occur. So that, of course, leads to coronary artery problems and things. So acute seizures themselves are not good for the heart. But chronic epilepsy affects the heart in a number of ways. So first of all, the cortical and subcortical areas are related to cardiac function through their influence on the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is a final effector pathway which modulates cardiac activity. So certain structures in the brain, which are the structures which are involved in epilepsy, have the most prominent role in controlling the autonomic function. And these include posterior insula, cingulate cortex, prefrontal cortex, and the amygdala. So these are structures which are frequently involved in chronic epilepsy anyway. Plus, with repeated seizures, each seizure would cause a heart rate and BP abnormality, transient myocardial ischemia, and a lowered arrhythmia threshold. And ultimately, this repetitive catecholamine-induced injury leads to something called the formation of an epileptic heart. This epileptic heart is a terminology which is used to characterize the heart, which is featured by chronic heart and coronary damage, resulting in myocardial fibrosis accelerated atherosclerosis, systolic and diastolic dysfunction, 
and arrhythmias. And of course, not to mention the problems caused by the lifestyle issues in these patients and also the anti-seizure medications. So cardiac is actually it's a huge part of pseudopathophysiology. In the respiratory system, people with chronic epilepsy have a high frequency of central and mixed apneas. Obstructive apneas can also occur because of laryngospasm and seizures, so this is hard to characterize. It's similar to the cardiac autonomic dysfunction, respiratory system also there's an autonomic uh, dysfunction like the respiratory, uh, the seizure networks connect the cortex to the brainstem and these networks cause autonomic dysfunction. So amygdala activation has been shown to cause apnea in animal seizure models. And there's a reduced functional connectivity between the amygdala and the brainstem in patients with the chronic epilepsy. So again, the common pathway is the autonomic nervous system, which is disrupted, which is pathological in patients with chronic epilepsy. Also, post-ictal apneas occur more commonly in seizures occurring from sleep because in sleep, there is a reduced chemoreceptor sensitivity. So the post-ictal state during sleep, there is a definite arousal deficit and post-ictal immobility. And the prone position is not the primary cause of death in these patients. The prone position usually occurs, it's an ictal turning prone. But once they turn prone, then of course, the recovery reflexes are not very well preserved in these patients in that post-ictal state during sleep. There is a brainstem spreading depression and ultimately what is called a post-ictal generalized EG suppression. So ultimately, this is what is called a neurovegetative shutdown, shutdown of all the vital functions such as respiration and cardiac activity. And finally, in addition to this, there's also neurotransmitter dysfunction in these patients, especially the uh, serotonergic dysfunction in the raphe neurons of the brainstem and the adenosine and the endogenous opioids. There might be dysfunction of these neurotransmitter pathways as well. Very comprehensive. No, thank you for going through each of the proposed mechanisms. Just wanted to jump into a little bit about SUDEP counseling and ask you about the American Academy of Neurology and American Epilepsy Society practice guidelines with SUDEP counseling. So these guidelines came earlier than the recent studies of the epidemiology. So this, they, they mentioned five points. So first was for children, then adults. So for children, they say clinicians caring for children with epilepsy should inform parents and guardians that in one year, SUDEP will affect, will typically affect one in 4,500 children. That means, so they also clarified, that means 4,499 children will not be affected. So give the positive message as well, because most we all tend to look at the negative aspect first. And so, and similarly in adults, clinicians caring for adults with epilepsy should tell them that one in a thousand adults will be affected per year. But again, that means that 999 will not be affected. Recent studies have shown that the incidence in adults as well as children is similar. So we probably should change it to same 1 in 1,000 for children as well. It's not 1 in 4,500. The third point is that if a person continues to experience GTCS, clinicians should do active management of the epilepsy and all therapies to reduce seizures. 
uh, while of course incorporating patient preferences and weighing the risks and benefits of any new approach. But we have to keep trying. These are the patients we need to be very aggressive about managing seizures, especially the generalized tonic-clonic seizures. So again, they have not specifically mentioned, but this obviously means a surgical ref, you know, evaluation and maybe neuromodulation and of course keep trying drugs. So this is something we need to be very aggressive about. And the fourth point is that for patients who have frequent GTCS and nocturnal seizures, clinicians may advise selected patients and families, if permitted by their individualized epilepsy and psychosocial circumstances, to use nocturnal supervision or other nocturnal precautions, such as the use of a remote listening device to reduce sodep risk. Because nocturnal supervision is the one proven modality to reduce sodep risk. So we have to tell it tell it to them. And then, of course, depending on their social circumstances and cultural issues, whether they're able to do it or not, but it's our job to inform them about this. And finally, the good thing also, uh, people with epilepsy or seizure-free, it's our job as clinicians to inform them that if you're free, especially free from GTCS, then you have a definitely very low sodep risk. There have been some recent studies that have been published about provider concern with increasing patient anxiety when discussing SUDEP at a time of or soon after the diagnosis. However, literature supports that patients would prefer to know about SUDEP at the time or sooner of the diagnosis. In the clinical setting, when and how do you recommend SUDEP counseling be performed? So again, I think it depends on the different settings, amount of resources and time which it's with the clinicians have. And if they have other support staff like, like counselors and epilepsy nurses. And so I, feel, I usually feel that at the time of diagnosis, there's already so much information that needs to be given about the epilepsy itself, the management, the drugs, the lifestyle. So to talk about SUDEP at the very first setting itself, I think it becomes too much for the family to take in. So uh, what I usually do is like I give the diagnosis and the management of epilepsy and then we usually give them some uh, material uh, literature uh, to go through. And that also includes a brief mention of SUDEP. And during the second or the third visit, when they're more comfortable with the diagnosis, they're more settled. That is the time I talk start talking about SUDEP because I think the first visit is overwhelming at that time. Soon, I would not wait six months, one year. I would not wait to see if the patient is drug resistant and then talk about it. But not during the very first visit, but maybe the second or the third. Tell tell us, I know there are you know misconceptions and challenges about SUDEP counseling. What do you find in your practice, some of those most common misconceptions and challenges? So the misconceptions amongst physicians, it's all, they're all scared about increasing parental anxiety. So they say, on the one hand, we tell them that your child is fine. They can do all the activities, some of them under supervision. We tell them that the child should lead as normal a life as possible. And on the other hand, you tell them that your child can die. So that is the physician's worry. That is one of the big challenges. The other challenge, especially in Indian culture, is that somehow talking about bad things, unpleasant things is is kind of taboo. It's like you talk about a bad thing and the bad thing happens. That's the... that's the thing in people's minds. So you don't want to talk about death. Like, but this is what, when we interacted with the parents, we found that it's there in their mind all the time anyway. So it's there in their mind. And it's good to bring it out in the open and tell them that it's, it's the risk is so much lower than what they f- feared. 
and then then they know that they get a sense of control that something you know you do can prevent it and so those things are very helpful and we did find that once we counseled the parents about how we can prevent and what helps we did find that compliance improved the timing of medications improved their you know frequency of hospital visits they did not miss visits so ultimately it was a big factor in improving their management of epilepsy it also gave them a sense of confidence and control so i think what and all many major studies have shown this that what physicians worry about parents and families and patients really want to know and we are more worried than we need to be when talking about it the other challenge i would say definitely is the question of time especially in our very heavy settings like i mean in a 3 to 4 hour clinic sometimes i need to see 50 patients so it's really not possible to you know talk so much in detail that's why we give them literature and now we make short videos also which they can see and then we find it helpful to once they've gone through all of it they have some idea and then we talk about what do you understand talk and give them the risk and that that helps better that saves time rather than telling them everything by ourselves so but it's important to tell them definitely do you when you see patients and you're going through student counseling do you document or use any tools to stratify each patient's risk factors for sudep there are definite risk factors which are known like uh, you know frequent gtcs comorbidity like intellectual disability or developmental delay and more than 50 seizures per month in the past year so there are many risk factors but practically i don't really sit with the tool when we see the patients we know that we have like well controlled and poorly controlled so broad groups and then the poorly controlled ones we have the ones with frequent gtcs and developmental delay which is a frequent comorbidity in children with epilepsy so yeah those patients definitely i think in them we just reinforce the counseling better like more frequently perhaps and once the, if we feel especially that there's certain preventable things the parents are missing we can reinforce that like especially compliance drug compliance and things supervision is usually not much of a problem with children and especially uh, in india co-sleeping is extremely common so these children anyway would be sleeping with their parents so that's never an issue but i would say for the well controlled patient it would be like maybe a one time mention and brief if they worried about it but the the difficult the high risk patients this counseling should be perhaps more frequent we don't leave it with just one mention of it do you have a sense of how many people diagnosed with epilepsy die of sudden death that may instead have had a primary cardiac problem people with epilepsy in fact they do have an increased death of sudden cardiac deaths as these deaths are called the increase is like a person with epilepsy is 2.29 times more likely to die of a sudden cardiac death than a person without epilepsy but this is likely because of ischemic heart disease this is the figure that was seen in various studies but there is no data whether these patients actually had syncopal seizures or you know cardiac events before this is a comorbidity i would say like in particular age groups and anyway ischemic heart disease is also pretty common so they may coexist with increasing age and plus of course the effect of drugs and anti-seizure medications which also alter the lipid profile so atherosclerosis also is more common so this can be a comorbidity are there any anti-seizure medications you avoid in patients given cardiac side effects and if they have a higher risk of sudep Yeah there is a worry with the lamotrigine 
and sodium channel blockers because in some retrospective studies it was found and especially animal work that lamotrigine might be increased risk of SUDEP. And the FDA recommends that lamotrigine and sodium channel blockers should be used with caution in patients who already have an underlying structural or ischemic cardiac disease. So in a patient with a pre-diagnosed heart disease, definitely we would be very cautious with these medications and probably not use them. There's a very large study published from Australia wherein they followed it. They had the EMU data and followed up the patients for sodepress, patients with lebotrigine and sodium channel blockers. And it was not found to have an increased risk. And the study was the follow-up study for almost for 16 years. And there are other population-based studies, which again did not demonstrate an increased risk. So these are reassuring to clinicians because the risk of SUDEP just because of these medications is likely to be low. So ultimately, the GTCS is more likely to cause SUDEP. And these medications are actually good for GTCS, right? So we need to balance the risks with the benefits. So ultimately, I think if if there is an underlying heart disease which we know about, then yes, we will not use them. But just if the patient is at high risk of SUDEP, probably if to control GTCS, these medications may actually be needed. So we should not be worried about the risk and not use. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a very interesting article that you mentioned from Australia. Jumping back into the questions here, what should be highlighted or included about SUDEP prevention and patient counseling? So I would say two major things, the compliance with the anti-seizure medications. I think that's an important risk factor because that is something which is in our hands. We cannot change comorbidities and things. So that is one thing which we can definitely reinforce. And the other thing is nocturnal supervision, if and when possible. Because these are two things which can help and which are doable, which are in our control. There are many seizure detection devices available in the market which use different modalities like you know EMG, active surface EMG, ECG and other things. I will not talk about particular devices, but uh, so the ILA and IFC and the International Federation of Clinical Neurophysiologists have recently in 2021 given recommendations for their use and I'll talk about them. They recommend using clinically validated wearable devices for automated detection of GTCS and focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures when there are significant safety concerns. So like if a patient sleeps alone and if the alarm rings and something can be done within five minutes. So both things are there. Just having this device is not going to help, right? There's somebody, there has to be a, you know, plan in place what to do if the alarm rings. Uh, this recommendation is weak and conditional because we don't have any data whether these devices has actually prevented its SUDEP. We don't have any data regarding that. We do know that they detect seizures and there can be false alarms. There can be quality of life issues. Like even for the person who sleeps in the other room, if the alarm keeps ringing every night. So those things are there. But yes, uh, and like I said, if the person is staying alone in a flat and the response time is going to be like 15, 20 minutes, it may not be of use. As a member of the International League Against Epilepsy SUDEP Task Force, I know you mentioned you guys have been meeting for about the past two years. Just curious if you can share some of the activities the group is promoting globally at this time. Yeah, so we are basically working on two documents. One is a consensus document on SUDEP counseling, and the other is to frame the definition and classification 
other than that, we are in the process of doing a number of educational activities on SUDEP for physicians and patients and families. We have put in proposals in various conferences for to increase awareness of SUDEP for various SUDEP sessions. Recently, Dr. Dr. Rainer Sergis has He's led a global survey of wearable seizure detection devices, and we our group hopes to submit it soon. It was interesting to find that hardly any country actually has guidelines for this seizure detection devices. So there are issues that guidelines are needed to provide reimbursement and things like covering by insurance and so many things. So these guidelines are definitely needed for national guidelines at each country level. Wonderful. Any last minute takeaway points that you'd like to share with our listeners today, Dr. Sharma? Yeah, so I will just say talk about SUDEP to patients and families. This is highly neglected. And so I think this is something which the families want and something we are not doing as much as we need to do. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharp Waves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.